Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. Now, in this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr. Ahmed Malik. Doctor, That's thank you for coming in. Absolute pleasure and well done. You got my name right first time round. <laughs> my absolute pleasure. Um, so you were, you are an orthopedic surgeon. Yes. Of about twenty years. Do you want to tell me about yourself? Uh, yeah. So I've. Actually, been a doctor since 1998, so that's 25 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and um, when I'm not suspended from work, yes, I fix broken ankles and feet. So I say right. that with a smile on my face because I work at three private hospitals. But five weeks ago, I got suspended from my main private hospital, right, because of my social media content. Ah, so you didn't you didn't fix you didn't put somebody's foot on backwards or anything? No, no, it was it was because of your opinions <laughs> about policy. Yes, so it's right. not because I amputated the wrong foot or any patients involved or if there's any right. clinical incident or patient complaint. It's because of my views. So you might want to be careful what you ask me while we chat <laughs> about the the first half of the segment that's on YouTube. Okay. Um, yeah, we can dive into that a little bit later. But yeah, that's what I am. I've been a doctor for 25 years. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm that old. And um, I love my job. Mm. I love fixing people. I love helping people. And, um, and I used to love the NHS. <laughs> but I don't anymore. So the NHS is one of those funny things in this country. It's, it's basically the state religion, isn't it? It's sort of held up as this... Um, perfect entity and and people have this weird really weird relationship with it where they spend half the year saying that it's the best thing that we have and everybody in the rest of the world is envious of it and then we spend the other half of the year saying it's irretrievably broken yep uh so I mean, how much of your career was spent in the nhs as opposed to private practice it's 2017 when i left Okay. That's what, 19 years? Okay. So what, what's... I'm never good at math. <laughs> yeah. And, and did you get involved? Did you sort of stick to sort of putting feet back on or did you, did you get involved in sort of running anything there while you were... Yeah, no, I, I did the whole shabam. But let's just go back to the thing about religion. It's really yes. funny you should say that. So when, growing up as a kid, I was a Muslim. I'm not now. I'm, mm. I'm over religion. I just believe in God and keep it simple. But growing up as a kid, we used to get taught all the time, you know, Watch out for the false idols there. Do not be an idol worshiper. And as a kid, I was like, who worships idols these days? You know, what yeah. idol? What false idol? I just, I didn't understand the sermons. I didn't understand the holy books and, and this whole idol business. It's funny now, yeah, my friend, I see false idols everywhere. There, there's a lot of... There's a lot of deep thinking in the old religious texts because I mean these people they're, they're presumably smart people and they didn't have they didn't have um, video games to play so they just sat around thinking about the human condition all day long and they codified it through whatever sort of religious text came out. Yeah, uh, I think it's yeah. all philosophy. I think human nature doesn't yes. change through the ages, through the millennia, and we have a habit of repeating mistakes. Yes. So now we have the false idols of the phone as an idol, climate change is, you know, an idol cult, your religion. You've got, you know, the NHS as a cult or religion. Yes. Um, I, I think of it as a cult, not just a religion, because with cults, um, you know, what is a cult? Let's break that down. So a cult is something where you have a hierarchy, you have a, a charismatic leadership. It's not necessarily just one person. Mm. You have a, a large following of observants who are never allowed to be dissidents and ask questions and mm. certainly not question policy from above. Mm. Um, there's always money involved. 
sometimes sexual <laughs> sexual scandals. Um, and it's about power, the the top down control, and making sure that every aspect of your life is dictated to who you can make friends with, who you can socially interact, what you do with your life. And it's, it's a control mechanism, uh, mm. you know, and and that's a cult. Um, and and you've got all the uh, you know the fans just fawning over the leadership and the idea. And the problem is that NHS is that NHS is a cult where. You know, like you said, it's a state religion. We love the NHS. It embodies the UK. You know, it's something that we're proud of. It's British culture. It's, it's what we sort of brand. And it's all fuzzy and warm and nice until you're on the sharp end of it. Yes. And you're on the receiving end of it. And you're waiting hours in A&E and you're getting mismanaged and someone's misdiagnosed you or you've had some receptionist or doctor ignore you and treat you badly and then suddenly you're like and then you get that bizarre cognitive dissonance that, that people in this country get which is you that the nhs is simultaneously the best thing ever and the worst thing ever i mean i'm fascinated by your point about comparing it to religion i went on um, you know family holidays recently to gloucester went to gloucester cathedral an entire wing of it had been taken over by the nhs and banners and photos of nhs people and stuff mm. like that now was um, the other wing all lgbtq <laughs> no it wasn't actually but yeah presumably that would be coming next yeah, but you know, um, so I mean, what's it like to work in? I mean, when you when because you, you do, what's it like working in a cult? Yeah, yeah. So the thing is, no one, most people who are in a cult don't know they're in a cult. Mm. And I can say this with confidence because I was in a religious cult, right. <laughs> and having extricated myself, all the people that are in the cult, I can tell you right now, they don't know they're in a cult. Right. Most people don't know they're in a cult. So the people who are working in the NHS, for the most part, are really good, good mm. people, hardworking, you know, went in there for the right reason, wanting to help people, and, they're, you know, they're just doing their best. Yes. Okay? That's the reality. That, that is the thing. But when the NHS was set up just after the Second World War, I think there was this noble intention of providing health care to the masses and, you know, for free. Um, but it's not technically free. Nothing in life is free. Okay? Mm. It's all through taxation. And, yeah. and, you know, so through taxation, we're going to provide health care to the masses. Now, that's one, that's one viewpoint that you can look at it. The other viewpoint is that they had an agenda right from the beginning to take away independence and decentralized health care and slowly yeah. start to centralise it. Well, I would point out that the NHS, um, when it came into being, it didn't go out and build a load of hospitals. It simply acquired the ones that were already there. So there was already in this country an established healthcare system, Absolutely. and it was quite good. Absolutely. No, and it wasn't just that. See, the thing is, history is so important, and people, a lot of people don't see the relevance of history, but everyone needs to study history. So pre-NHS, there were hundreds of different types of hospitals mm. and doctors, and also healthcare practitioners. You had medical herbalists, you had chiropractors, you had osteopaths, you had homeopaths, you had the whole shabam. And after the NHS, all that kind of alternative healthcare that we now think of, mm. which actually some would argue was original healthcare, yes. and allopathic and medical pharmaceutical driven healthcare is the real alternative healthcare, yes. because that didn't exist for hundreds of years, that became the main focus. So they stripped away all the other forms of health And I'm naturally attracted to what you're, what you're describing there because essentially what you're saying is there's a whole bunch of independent actors who are attempting to use their best endeavours to get their best outcome. Mm. 
and then the market can go where the market will. Yes. And through that, you're basically so this 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 is like um, what I used to do VC. This is this is this is innovation at multiple different layers. Most will fail. Mm. One or two will spot something that nobody else was seeing, and that will become thing. And when you standardize it with something like an NHS, essentially what you're doing is you're saying no, we are, we have one point of view. 100%. And if there are any solutions, any innovative solutions that fall outside that, they become ignored. Hundred percent, you nailed it. So you're either free market mm. or you're not. You're either individualist or collectivist. You know. Yes. And basically, before, look, there were snakes all and snake all people. Yes. And and you know the the charlatans and the crooks and the cranks and the and the quacks. You know, yes. exploiting the people mm. because when you're a patient and you're desperate. You'll seek out desperate measures. Mm. So, hundred percent, there were you know there were not great things going on, but there were also mm. were great things going on. And take for example, yeah. herbal medicine. Like this has been going on for millennia, and you know, and you know, you get a lot of medicinal products from herbs, and and you know, they were ostracized, and, and you know, in America in particular, they passed an act. I've forgotten the name of it. I just lost it. But mm. basically, it was all about the Rockefellers bringing in pharmaceutical drug patentable you know, expensive medication as opposed to all yes. these alternative forms of treatment. And that came to the UK, that model of you will take a drug and a pill for a problem. Um, and, and all the other kind of traditional forms of medicine were thrown out the window or, you know, sidelined. And so now you've got doctors who are going from medical school, being indoctrinated to a large degree, mm. being told, here's the pathology, here's the tablet, move on. You know, one of the things that as a medical student I was really frustrated about was I never really was taught what's the root cause. Why do people get psoriasis? Why do people get diabetes? Ah, that's interesting. You know? I would have assumed you that was like years one, two, and three of a medical degree. And then the then then the years the, right? the final couple of years would have been how to treat it. But it's right? not that. No. Quite often wow. it was like, we don't know this the cause of this. We don't know the root cause. And then so you'd be like, but why don't we know the root cause? You know, we're we're ready to jump to here's a tablet to take for this problem. Why are we not looking at the okay, root cause? A suspicious part of me that? is thinking maybe somebody somewhere does know the cause, but they're making money off it. So I'll come to that in a second. Right. Let's go back to the NHS. Yeah. yeah. So now what you've done is you've you've got rid of all the variety and variation, hmm. and I can see the uh, attractions. Let's put on the devil's advocate hat and see the attraction. So you've got some really great people out there practicing medicine from whatever speciality. You got some really, really bad ones. Some people are getting harmed, mm. damaged by that. But look, if we take the market principles, it will all even up. The bad ones will be found out, sued, chased out the village. Yeah. <laughs> the great ones. Well, well, can, can you imagine if, if we still had that system in the modern day, but with modern um, social media yeah, you, reviews? You would have something like the trip advisor for doctors yeah, yeah. and you know w the the bad actors would get flushed out significantly faster 100%. and the people who have innovated something genuinely beneficial uh, would become sort of superstars 100 yeah. percent. so and it's any walk of life so take for example you guys lotus eaters mm. you know you've got a massive following audience fan base why because you're producing great content yes you're not producing shit Okay, if you're producing absolute garbage, no one's going to listen to you and they're going to switch mm. off. So you guys are on your tippy toes making sure you're producing great content and getting fantastic guests like me on board. Okay? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but that's what, how the market works. And you either believe in the market or you don't. 
Um, so anyway, so when you bring in the NHS, one of the attractions is you kind of standardise it a little bit. So you get rid of all the crap and the dangerous... Oh, it's got a bit, a bit, beyond, uh, a bit beyond a bit of standardisation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but the problem is you also lower down the excellence, the innovation, the things that drive things moving forward. Mm. It also makes things more inefficient and corruptible. And we'll come to that in a sec. Yeah. So, I mean, just as a user of the NHS, every time I go into an NHS hospital, I can't turn off the bit of my brain, which is looking around, seeing the inefficiency everywhere. And it is so much in an NHS hospital. It is maddening. So let's I can't imagine what it must have been like for somebody with a bit of a mindset in there who is actually in it 24-7. It depends, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's so much to talk about. Um, so basically, the way you cope in the NHS is to not care. You have to detach yourself. You have to say, okay, this mm. patient's been waiting for a year. They're suffering. It's not my problem. What's, what can I do? There's the diagnosis. Put them back on the waiting list. Discharge them or whatever. If you take on board the suffering and the pain and see the inefficiency and get frustrated and upset and angry, You'll end up with a heart attack. You'll end up with a nervous breakdown. You'll end up getting. So is this stressed. learned psychopathy or something? Learned helplessness. You know, where yeah. basically, look, it's just really difficult. And I can tell you because I had the mental breakdown, where I was head of the department for three years. I thought I could change things. I was so youthful and and yeah. and, and, and and you know ambitious and optimistic. I thought I go. I can fix this. And when I pulled the curtain back and saw what was actually going on, I realized mm. there was absolutely nothing I could do. This is way beyond the power of Ahmed Malik. Even though I'm a yes. force to be reckoned with, <laughs> this was yeah. a lot more. And this, was, this machinery was either going to kill me or, or um, I had to leave. And I had to leave. So, I, so you were running your, your orthopedics department, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, okay. and, and it sounds a bit strange, but I left the NHS because I cared. And that's yeah. a really weird thing to say. No, I, 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 yeah, I get that. I get that. <laughs> people thought I was leaving the NHS because of a money-grabbing private surgeon and I just wanted to make money. Yeah. I didn't actually. I, I, I still only worked two and a half days a week. Mm. I decided I'd rather spend more time with my family and kids and my health mm. than just work like a crazy person and pay for an expensive nanny and end up with a divorce. Mm. And <laughs> so I just worked two and a half That's days a week. That's what I do, about two and a half days a week. Yeah. It's, it's the sweet spot, yeah. Yeah, and, and the thing is, you know, I, I did a podcast with Ed Griffin, and, and you know, I, you've heard of him, Ed Griffin, the, the uh, creature from Jekyll Island. He writes... Oh, okay. Oh, yes, that's, that's, that's next up on my reading list, actually. He wrote actually. about the Federal Reserve. Fantastic right. book. He's 92. And, oh. and he said, look, Ahmed, the way to protect yourself is don't find yourself in debt. Don't indebt yourself because then you're enslaved to the system. Yes. So I, I don't. I have a mortgage because I'm I'm in the system. But other than that, I live a simple life. But the NHS really grinds you down, and that's why morale is so low. Look, it rewards the inefficient. If you do the bare minimum, mm. it's very hard to sack you. If you drag your feet and literally walk backwards, you, you you'll be fine. No one's gonna get right. you into trouble. But if you're innovative and hardworking. What you get is a phone call saying, hey, can you do some more work? Can you see more patients? And so you just get, and you don't get any financial reward for it. You just get more pressure, more work. So it's, it's not a good system. The capacity um, as you as a clinician is constantly being reduced. You have less time with your patients and time with patients is so important. Listening to your patient, trying to figure out root cause, 
try to change their lifestyle, their bad habits. And instead of spending half an hour with a patient, which is like the bare minimum, you find yourself spending five minutes. Now, you tell me, if you came to see me with a problem that you've had for three years that's stopping you yeah. from working and driving and is causing problems at home with your family and your wife, and you come and see me and I give you five minutes to take your history, yes. figure out the problem and tell you what I'm going to do with you, would you be happy? Well, m m most people would even know how to properly describe the issue. And, and you, you presumably need time to ask the right questions that elucidates the you know, the thinking in the patient, because, you know, may, maybe there's some other thing, maybe, maybe their sleep is thrown off or some other thing is happening. Bingo. Yeah. But that's not what they're interested in. So when you understand that the model that we've now got in the NHS is not about health and you as an individual patient, but actually profit and policy, mm. it's bloody scary. So no one should any, any longer think of the NHS as this nice, fluffy, warm, cozy, you know, you know, British tradition that we should value. It's a dangerous thing. So the way that the politicians come at this is to say that if only the NHS had more money, it would be all right. Now, my thinking on that is that you could shovel the entire GDP of this country and every other country into it. And if it's inefficient and set up wrong and the systems are incorrect, you're not actually going to get a better outcome. You're just going to get more and more bureaucracy. Agreed. So the reason why the politicians say yeah, they need more money, but they don't have it, but then they do. I remember mm. we had this period of austerity, austerity after yes. 2000. Remember, we have no money for anything. Yes. We have money for HS2. God knows why. 100 billion plus. Where's that money going? The government spending never went down, even over austerity. Exactly. Mm. And then when we had the pandemic, um, <sighs> You know, we had all this money because the magic money trees were found. Mm. And so, you know, I, I'm so glad they found that money tree forest and they had all this money. Um, but the thing is, the reason why politicians love money um, in the right place and time, because they give it to their cronies. They give it to their backers and their funders. Mm. It's, look, corruption in the UK is very sophisticated. You go to Nigeria yes. and Pakistan, it's corrupt. It's in the end of a gun. If someone's saying threaten yes. you, you have to take a suitcase full of money. Yes. Over here, the money transaction is by appointments and by contracts. We're sophisticated. We're, mm. we're the best at this. We teach the world how to be corrupt. <laughs> so basically, the money that gets pumped into the NHS, the NHS is a gravy train. Who are mm. you kidding? What happened to that NHS digital contract? that went nowhere and 10 billion was spent on it. Just think about that, 10 mm. billion. Now you're into money, math mm. and numbers. How many millions is that? I mean, this is a number Good of, view. this is a figure that's yeah. unimaginable for the average person. Well, it gets it, to the point where it's ridiculous. E e even at the smallest scale, um, you know, um, invariably living in this country, you've got friends and family who do work in the NHS. Um, one of them was telling me recently that, um, you know, because they're all doing consultations over on, on, the, on the laptop, uh, she needed a microphone uh, to do this job. And it's a, it's a £15 microphone. Anyway, that failed. Um, and the procedure was, rather than just order a new microphone, um, they called out an engineer. The engineer charges £85 an hour to fix a microphone. He spent two hours on it and then ordered a new microphone. Yep. Sounds about right. Yeah. So I've got so many examples. Where do we start? So what you should know is in the 1980s, 4% um, of the NHS budget went to management class. That's like 96%. 4%. Yeah. So wow. 90, I have to admit, 
even though I don't actually believe in a centralized public body like mm. the NHS anymore. I am a libertarian. I want minimal government involvement in anything. Mm. My personal belief is leave me the frack alone. Okay? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and leave things to the free market. Okay. So, I mean, okay, look, I'm not a complete anarchist, although I'm maybe yes. going to drift towards that. But I think maybe the government should be there to for national defence, not NATO yeah. and attacking and bombing other countries. Literally, national defence. I, I, I quite like Medicavist, which is, you know, the, the minimum possible government that you need to do the job. 100%. Yeah. You know, maybe the defence actually be able to stop immigrants crossing the channel. You know? Oh, I, I'd privatise the defence, but yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, you know, actually doing their job, okay? Yes. So that's it. Taxation, leave it, leave it at, you know. Yeah. And education, none of your business. Healthcare, none of your, everything. Just stay mm. out of it. Let us get on with running our communities and our towns and our villages and whatever it is. So that's my personal philosophy. Because when you centralize things, you you basically lead to totalitarianism and yeah. which whichever form it is. Okay. So you you've highlighted something a bit earlier on, which was you know there's great people in it. Whenever I've argued against the NHS, that is the immediate pushback that I get. Oh well, actually, I think the doctors and nurses are great because when I say that I when I say something critical of the NHS, they automatically flip it to being critical of, of doctors and nurses. Yeah, but that's a nonsensical argument. They, well, they would presumably still be good people if they were working in businesses which um, they themselves controlled. Because yeah. what would happen is is you know doctors like yourself would spot inefficiencies. Let's say let's say the budget moved with the person as just a sort of entry level version of this. Um, you would spot that, okay, your orthopedics department is, is massively inefficient. So what you'd do is you'd say, you'd say to a bunch of your colleagues and your nurses and, and maybe even a couple of managers that you like, let's go and set up down the road and then sell this service back cheaper than th this hospital is doing it. And, you know, we, we take half the difference. The, the, com the government can take that as a saving. The other half we take as a profit. You could do something like that. And I would imagine that it would start to run a lot more efficiency. But that doesn't seem to take place. And there's no appetite for anything like that to take place. It's not, and I don't, but talking about, we, we need to go back to the management and, and, and the budget in a oh, second. Yes, don't, yes. don't make me forget yes. that. But basically, take me, for example, mm. I'm full-time private, yes. right? That's very rare that a consultant goes full-time private. Most people who do private practice have got their foot in the NHS door and the private sector, right? And I'll come to this in a second. But take me, I would argue I care more about my patients and their outcomes as a full-time private surgeon mm. than an NHS surgeon. Why is that? It's a very bold statement to make. Well, I guess because you can, because the system allows it. Yes. So I can practice my medicine the way I want to, which is treating patients like they were my family. Secondly, if I botch up or do something bad mm. or, you know, start harming my patients, my reputation will go out the window and I will not have any more patients. You know, word will spread that mm. this guy is dangerous. This guy is not safe. This guy is doing things. You know, you're only as good as your, as your last patient. Okay, so your reputation, you know what it's like. It takes years to build. Mm. It takes seconds to demolish. Mm. And that's why one of the techniques that people use in authority to get rid of someone is to discredit them. It's very mm. easy to make something stick on someone and tarnish their reputation. So anyway, as a full-time private surgeon, I'm going to work really hard to make my patients happy, treat them like a patient, um, my family members. And I always say to my patients, I'm a really shit businessman. But I'm an ethical surgeon. That's why my conversion rate to surgery is only 5%. But when you're in the NHS, if you complain about me, who cares? 
I'm not going to lose my job. My indemnity is covered by the government. Great, you complained. Someone in management will respond to you. You might even sue. Great, someone from government, the taxpayer, will give you a little check. Me as a surgeon, I carry on just as I am. As a surgeon in the NHS, I can start experimenting with my patients. I can try out new operations. Yes, you heard me right, mm. buddy. You'll go away. You'll learn some new operation. You should tell your patients that I haven't done this operation very much. Or, but normally they don't. They'll start practicing on their patients in the NHS. And then they'll go and take that refined operation and do it in the private sector. Ah. Uh, do you see how right. this is working? Yes. Now, if the little granny who's 76 that you experimented on, the operation doesn't go well. Oh, well, bad luck. She won't know any better. You won't explain yes. it to her. Who cares? When it comes to your 45-year-old in the private sector, you know, you've already fine-tuned that operation and hopefully everything will go well. But you won't operate on the 45-year-old affluent lady and say, oh, by the way, I've never done this operation before. Can I experiment on you? See how this works? Yes. There's so many other things like this. But basically, patients in the NHS, you know, are find it very difficult to complain. They find it very difficult to know their rights, seek second opinions. And the system is designed to take away and strip away your individuality. Anyway, let's go back, 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 back. So, so do you see how I care more as a mm. private surgeon? I've got more but Absolutely, state. because you, you can. It, yeah. Yeah. I'm not dictated by anyone. I'm not dictated by yeah. policy and directors and managers. And well, I, th I think you said it well at the beginning that in, in the NHS, you have to stop caring. You have to. There'll be a lot who'll push back and say, of course we care. And, and look, Well, as much as you can in a five-minute consultation, making them wait for a year and all the rest of it. Look, I'm not saying people don't care. Of mm. course they care. But the, those people are the ones that will get burnt out. Mm -hmm. With time, the attrition will get to them. They'll start off as a junior doctor, very optimistic and enthusiastic. They'll get, become a consultant and think, great, I'm going to change things and make things better. And then reality is going to... So again, friends and family who work in the <clears throat> NHS, I've heard this story several times. You, you have to detach um, and you, you start hearing about colleagues of theirs who do the bare minimum. Um, and it seems to be the majority of them. And the ones who, who seem to be genuinely upset by this and trying to do the best, they always burn out. I've, I've seen it several times. Exactly. That's what happens. So, you know, I, like I said, in the 1980s, early 80s, you know, 4% of the budget was going to the NHS and uh, management Managers, class. Yeah. And like I said, actually, this, despite not believing in the ethos of a centralized government-led healthcare system, it was very efficient and very economical. Mm. And it started off with some really good, positive aspects to it. Okay? Mm. And that's truth. And it was a very efficient model. Um, they took care of their doctors. They took care of their nurses. It was very much clinician-led. Do, do you know what was different? I mean, just on a demographic basis, I know that in the 1980s, the bulk of the population was um, in their sort of 30s and, and early 40s at most. That baby boomer generation was there, and there was relatively few old people. So that, that would have made it easier for them. But what, what else was it that was different about the 80s to now? I don't know, but I, I just know that's what, what the budget was like. So in mm. the 2000s, the budget ma management class went up to about 10%. And this is all the Blair Brown kind of era. Now it's... So, so early 2000s, we got up to 10%. Yeah. Okay. Now, I think it's around 35%. Just think about that. From 4% to 35% of the budget is management class. These are not people frontline delivering care 
service or producing. Yeah. Or, or, or worse, they might have been doing something useful um, and because they displayed competence, they got promoted into a management role and then they just spend their entire time having meetings about policy. So what I, <laughs> what I found when I was a clinical director was you would go to a meeting where they would discuss the minutes of the last meeting and plan the agenda of the next meeting and then that was it. Mm. And I'm like, what? <laughs> we haven't done anything. And when you had an idea and when you wanted to do something, it involved 20 meetings, flowcharts, because people needed to justify their jobs and justify their roles. All right. And management's, management class was hilarious. You, you were not a very good manager and you would just move from one hospital to another and get promoted all the way. <laughs> Jumping from one place to another and going up the ladder. And it was just unbelievable. These people who are totally disconnected from healthcare, they don't actually know what it means to, to deliver frontline healthcare. This you know, spotty kid out of university <laughs> was telling me what to do. It was just all ridiculous. It was getting to a point where it was just ridiculous. Anyway. So, so the managers that you would typically have telling you what to do would be people who, who, are not, who've, who have not been orthopedic surgeons for 40 years and then have become managers. It would be somebody who's fairly fresh out of university yeah. who's been appointed and they've gone in as a manager. Yeah, it's a whole management class. And then they all speak management speak. So I, I'm like, <laughs> I'm from Glasgow. I like to speak plain English. I can use fancy technical jargon, but listen, I'm from a working class background and I know the, the game. It's all bullshit. Every mm. industry likes their little jargon to make them look clever and appear like they know it all. And also because knowledge is power. So you mm. use this fancy word so the other person feels a bit bamboozled and they need you. Mm. And the worst example is lawyers and legalese. So look, I like to keep things very simple. Mm. There's a whole management speak, whole language, which is absolute bollocks. Yes, yes. Okay, which means nothing. And, and so these people from this management class, they don't really understand healthcare. They don't really understand what it means to be a patient. All they care about is numbers, figures, stats, profit. And then, and, then, and slowly, over the years, legislation has been passed to totally transform what the NHS was. So like I said, even though I don't believe in the NHS as a system, it did start off pretty okay. It did mm. start off not bad at all. I'm not going to argue with that. I actually think the worst case is we go back to that, actually. You know, it wasn't that bad. It was actually quite good. Mm. Um, but from a philosophical point of view, I don't agree with that model, but it was good. Um, but it's been so transformed, it's not that. So, for example, it's not a national asset or treasure now. It's been so privatized, so much of it is now privately owned and just has a little NHS sticker slapped on top of it to give it this. So, so how does that work when you say it's, a lot of it is privately owned? Take, for example, in the past, you know, on the ward, the ward cleaner would be employed by the hospital. And, right, okay. And this cleaner worked only on that ward, Ward 10. Yes. And she took pride in her Ward 10. And Matron Kett made sure that the cleaner from Ward 10 did her job properly. Right. And, and she, you know, she, would, she would get upset with the doctor if they left a syringe behind. You know, she took pride in that. Now, yes. the cleaner is run by a service company that's privatised yes. and being given a Got contract. It who changes every week, who's on Ward 10 this week and Ward 5 another week, 
doesn't really care. She's on shift, clocking on, getting paid, paid bare minimum wage. No mm. pride in her work. You know, so it's privatised. You've detached the because you what you were describing before is a sort of sense of community. There was a team who worked together, and the cleaner would have been part of that team and would have known the standards for that ward and all the rest of it. So let's take you had a hospital, right? So catering was all in house. Yes, the food was produced by the cooks and everything given to the ward. It's all fresh Mm. in there, not great, but still it was was pretty good. Mm. The cleaners were all paid for by the hospital. They're all directly employed. The, the uniforms were washed on site by the hospital you know, mm. itself. They had a cleaning department. You had all the instruments sterilized on site. Okay? Mm. So everything was paid for directly as an employee. You were an employee of the NHS, uh, of the hospital. You stayed in hospital accommodation. The nurses were looked after. I mean, we can go into nursing. You, uh, we need to talk about that as well in a second. Um, so everything was in-house, controlled. It was a brand. You worked for a hospital. You felt loyalty towards that hospital. You know, it was a team. It was a big, big team. Now, everything is outsourced. Everything is outsourced. The car park has been sold off. Uh, the land has been sold off to a car park, which oh, is bloody now... car parks at hospitals, yeah, yes. Which is now outsourced to a company, okay? Mm. You're, the land has been sold off, assets stripped, and you've built houses on it, so you don't have much land anymore. So this, this land that was owned by the government, the taxpayer, mm. is now owned by private companies. So the actual land base and assets have all been stripped away from these hospitals. The hospital is now a PFI yes. building, which means that you've taken this massive loan, the government's taken this massive loan and, and rent it off and said, don't worry, you know, the, the risk is all on us. The interest rates are... You know, day loan kind of rates, 18, 20%. Yes. And so, so uh, just a quick aside there. I mean, I, I worked in finance and I remember speaking to a bunch of guys who were on the other side of those PFI contracts and they were joking about it, about how, re- how ridiculous the amount of money they were making. Yeah. Was because they, they are professional negotiators, they're professional finances, and they went and negotiated with a bunch of bureaucrats. Yeah. And they absolutely took the piss with those deals. And, and the government steined them. But look, you can go down this attitude of, oh, incompetence, government. No, no, no. It's all cronyism. Like, people mm. made money out of it. Okay. And where there's money, there's, there's corruption. Okay. Mm. So, you know, the government could have took, taken out own government bonds and loans at a much lower reduced rate, but they decided to go privately, schmooze up to the private mm. sector. Money was exchanged, you know, greasy palms, yeah. and everyone was a winner. Okay. Except you and I and mm. all the taxpayers. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.